Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Something if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. I'm Janelle. Is this a sex phone operator? What is happening right now? <laughs> I just wanted to do a sultry intro. I, um, am I paying per minute? What's going on? <laughs> you couldn't afford me, honey. Oh, wowzers. Okay. <laughs> I think I need oh to talk God. with HR. This is sexual harassment. <laughs> we don't have HR. <laughs> oh, that's because I am HR. You're fired. I am HR. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, welcome to the show. This is your first time listening. A special hello to you. I bet that was confusing if this is the first time you're listening. <laughs> yeah, I think it's that toast I was eating is making me spicy. Oh, what? <laughs> The whitest thing you could eat is making you spicy. (laughs) I know. And it's homemade. It's so good. Okay, okay. I think it's because I was very hungry. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not. We're really talking up the bread bread jam over here. (laughs) So good. We've got a great episode for you, Jay. Very excited. Filled with toast and other things. Toast. (laughs) Trick crime. (laughs) Toast toast. and crime. That's what we got. (laughs) Uh, But first... Let's head over to the newsroom. This week, our news is cannabis news. Hooray for weed. <laughs> uh, and it comes from Antarctica. Okay. Where it is now, I would expect that to come from. (laughs) Where it is now legal to smoke marijuana. Wow. Um. So, like, uh, what? (laughs) There's people there. So, uh, there's tons of like research bases, and there's it's sort of a burgeoning tourist industry to go to Antarctica now too okay (laughs) there is there is it's a thing so you have people spending a lot of time in this very desolate area like kind of enclosed you know what I mean like they're just alone and for a long time in a desolate area so a lot of the the I don't want to say a lot of I don't want to generalize like that some (laughs) of (laughs) thank you so much for not generalizing (laughs) Yes. Some of especially the people who are there doing research, working the research facilities would bring uh, marijuana with them because it sort of helps to ease some of the stress of like being at one of these bases in Antarctica. 
the interesting thing is that Antarctica is sort of uh, like internationally uh, governed because there's not. Uh, and this is a treaty that goes back to like when they first started exploring, I think back to mm, early 1900s, maybe where uh, everybody kind of agreed to just like govern this internationally. So this group of research researchers who worked on there decided to sort of like petition this governing body um, that decided that you are allowed to essentially transport marijuana there to consume while you're in Antarctica. Isn't that isn't that interesting? So I go. I'll remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It has it has to do with um, some people getting busted for sneaking and joining in after they had done it a few times, and then they kind of decided to go and and try to make this change. Um, but it was officially so. Basically, the the legal jargon states if and when a person is to be confined confined to the hostile environment of Antarctica, even on chosen missions or touristic purposes, that individual has the right to bring up to one ounce of cannabis per two month period for either medical or recreational purposes. It was officially put in in 2022, but it's kind of like now's the thing. So it's legal to smoke cannabis in Antarctica. How exciting is that? We did it. (laughs) Not that I'm planning on going to Antarctica anytime soon, but (laughs) Listen, I don't like to make our news always doom and gloom. I mean, our news generally isn't. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But this is a particularly, I don't know, win for Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what the world needs. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along to Netflix and Kill. This week, we are talking about MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. If you are into conspiracies and strange disappearances like this is extremely your shit (laughs) yeah yeah i started watching it and then had to stop so i only watched like the first quarter of it fair fair uh so for those of you that do not remember this only happened in march 2014 a plane from malaysia airlines was flying from kuala lumpur Uh, International Airport in Malaysia to the Beijing Capital International Airport in China when it completely disappeared around 38 minutes after takeoff. It just went missing. It had uh, 227 passengers, 12 crew, all of which are assumed dead. It's it's one of these very weird things. The The Malaysian government was like, very cagey about the investigation into the plane. Um, There were issues with like changing of airspace and who has jurisdiction over that. The, because it went offline, like over the middle of the ocean, it's hard to figure out the path of the airplane and the things that they were relying on were like data. There has also since been many, many abounding conspiracy theory over what actually happened to the plane, whether it was like a hijacking by the pilot or, say, the U.S. government, uh, like taking the plane down or, you know, like various (sighs) theories. It was just really, you know, scratches that mystery itch, I guess. Did you have any thoughts on the bit that you watched? No, because it was just getting into the 
the plane disappearing. So <laughs> I don't mm. have much of um, a bit of a thought on it, but it uh, it's interesting. And, um, yeah, and they have, have a lot of interviews from the like the people. <laughs> yeah, they have a lot of interviews from the people left behind, which is interesting. It just is like a really weird. A lot of times I hear of these mysteries and I think of stuff that's like long in the past. But the fact that this happened so recently with all of the technology that we have, you know what I mean? Like it just is, it's so bizarre. But it's a great documentary if you have some time. Definitely uh, scratches that conspiracy itch if you got one. We sure do. (laughs) (laughs) So this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. We'll be talking about murder. You don't say. I am. Yes. Murder and mystery. After watching the MH370 documentary, as you can tell, I got on this sort of like, you know, very spooky mystery story kick. Real big whodunits. So, whodunits, yes. So, I thought maybe we should look at some more unsolved cases. And unsolved cases is very broad it is yes <laughs> very very broad you know, it, it encompasses a lot of things yeah just think about unsolved mysteries right oh yes yes i was watching uh what was i watching might have been unsolved mysteries might have been um forensic files and it was this story about an investigation into a collision between an fbi car and a cia car i think during a time when they were trying to like prep the Grand Canyon for a visit from the Queen, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, this is all true. I actually, I almost thought about covering that one because it was a very weird story. I don't, might have not been in the CIA and the FBI, but it was a whole car crash and who took blame. It's very strange. Okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> random tangent. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mystery story this week takes us to 1922 Germany. Okay. Not where I thought we were going, but okay. <laughs> now, stepping stepping a little out of the U.S. this week, uh, more specifically, a farmstead owned by the Gruber family just outside of Kaifeck, Germany. Okay. So the Hinterkaifeck farmstead, as it was known, was owned by 35-year-old widow Victoria Gabriel, she lived there with her two children, seven-year-old daughter, Kazilia, and two-year-old, Yosef, as well as her parents, 64-year-old Andreas Gruber and 72-year-old Kazilia. Yes, the grandmother and the granddaughter have the same name. So I'll try to point out the elder and younger Kazilia. Now, Victoria's parents lived there. They helped out on the farm, and the family also had a maid to aid with the household tasks. In April 1922, folks around the homestead uh, realized that they hadn't actually seen any members of the family in town in a few days, and the young Kazilia hadn't been to school in two days. But on the few occasions that there were like witnesses to the property, neighbors and stuff, it seemed like there were still something going on at the farm. Like there was still like some sign of activity. Okay. So on April 1st, a local artisan named Michael Plackle claimed to have witnessed smoke rising from the chimney, as well as an unknown person holding a lantern. Ominous. Ominous. That's that's very, I know, I imagine it's all in shadow except for the lantern, you know, very, (laughs) very spooky. 
the next night on April 2nd, another witness, local butcher Simon Rylander, claimed to have seen two unknown people on the edge of the property that left when he attempted to approach them. The next day, when the postman arrived, he noticed that the mail from the previous day hadn't been touched. And then on April 4th, repairman Albert Hoffner visited the homestead to repair an engine. Like this was a pre-planned visit. So from Faxology, he did not see any of the family, but noticed the barn doors locked and heard the family dog barking inside. At that moment, Albert didn't think much of the scene. And since the farm's machine room was open, he headed in to fix the engine. Four hours later, his work was complete, but as he was leaving the farm, he noticed the barn door was open and the dog was now tied up outside, despite him never seeing or hearing the family as he worked. Hmm. Ghost? A a ghost? (laughs) When he arrived back in town, he told some of the people about this strange story um, to some of the locals, and he decided... Like some of the a group of the locals decided it was weird enough that they were going to go out to the farm to sort of check it out. Mm-hmm. When they arrived at the house, the group found all the doors locked and noted that it didn't appear that anyone was inside. They then saw that the barn door was open, like the machinist said. And after they investigated, they discovered the bodies of Andrea, Kazilia, Victoria, and her daughter, Kazilia, stacked and covered in hay, bludgeoned to death. Mm-hmm. And they no- they also noticed, uh, so they decided to sort of like move the bodies around to see mm-hmm. if anybody was still alive. Yeah. And noticed that the youngest son, Yosef, was missing. Mm-hmm. So... One of the men ran into the house through a there was a connecting hallway from the barn to the house. And so he was able to make it in that way, found Yosef, as well as the family's maid, Maria, both bludgeoned to death as well inside of the house. The group immediately contacted authorities. But by the time George Ringenruber, inspector from the Munich police arrived, it was like 45, a 45 minute uh or I'm sorry, a 45 mile travel in, what did I say? 1922. Yeah. Uh, I ran a horse. Yeah. By the time he got out there, like word had spread to the locals. Uh, so they all came out to Hinterkaifeck to like see for themselves and trampled over a bunch of evidence and moved a bunch of shit around. Oh goodness. Okay. Yep. <laughs> there was also talk of people like making, like making lunch, like, Let's make lunch while we're, you know what I mean? Like in the kitchen and do, yeah. Oh my God. In the, in the house? Mm-hmm. What? I would never Small just town go shit. to some other person's home and start making lunch in their kitchen. That's so weird. I, I guess, but like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh, but that's what they did. They were like, let's check out some bodies and make some lunch. <laughs> so According to later autopsies, the bludgeoning was done with either a mattock or pickaxe. The whole family had died instantly from the blows, except for the younger Kazilia, who survived for several hours before her ultimate demise. Mm -hmm. This is again from Faxology. It was theorized that the, uh, quote, the shock and trauma of her attack and watching her family killed caused her to pull out her own hair in her final hours. Yeah. 
they also theorize that on the night of the killings, the family members were lured into the barn one by one, each being struck in the head as they entered. All four members in the barn received multiple blows. Uh, the killer then went into the home where he struck Maria in her bed and finally young Yosef killing him instantly. It should also be noted that Maria, uh, the family's maid, had just started the same day that the entire homestead was murdered. Oh, God. What a terrible time to start a job. Yeah. And they confirmed this with her sister later, but it was literally that was her first day on the farm. As police began investigating the murders, they were sort of able to put together a timeline events leading timeline of events leading up to the slayings that painted a very weird picture. So six months before the maid who had worked for the family before Maria um, decided to quit, saying she was hearing voices and believing the house was haunted. Is this a someone lives inside my attic and I don't know it? I'm only just realizing that this might not be your favorite story. Um, Someone is living in my house and I don't know it. (laughs) Maybe. No. Uh, Neighbors also reported to police that Andreas had noticed footprints in the dirt around the property in the days leading up to the murders that led towards the house, but not away as well as hearing footsteps in the attic and missing keys to the tool shed where the murder weapon would later be taken from. He had also noticed a strange newspaper appear in the house that he hadn't purchased. (laughs) This is like my worst nightmare. (laughs) I know. I'm like, it's interesting to me that like leaving it, the act of leaving something else in somebody's house is almost worse. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I know I didn't get that. Or just like moving something slightly, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. <laughs> You're going to sleep great tonight, Janelle. <laughs> good times, good times. <laughs> so all of this information combined with the stories that the neighbors told of there appearing to be somebody at the house in the days following the murders led authorities to believe that the killer had been living at the homestead for some time after he had killed the family. It appeared that not only did the killer eat the family's food, but tended to the animals and milked the cows for a few days. Of course they did. (laughs) It's the generosity. Mm -hmm. Now, initially, police investigated the crime as a robbery gone wrong, but further investigation found a large sum of money in the house that hadn't been taken, and they quickly shifted gears. There was also a short time where authorities thought that it may have been a murder-suicide after allegations of domestic violence surfaced, but the autopsy... Yeah. (laughs) Oh, girl, hang on. It's about to get wild. The autopsy confirmed the wounds could not have been self-inflicted. I mean, it's like bludgeoning in the head with an axe, so... Yep. (laughs) That That would definitely be tricky. Now, of course, as in every small town... The family's own scandalous past began to surface. Uh, according to Historic Mysteries, quote, one major indiscretion kept surfacing. Some unknown person filed a complaint either in 1914 or 1915 against Andreas Gruber and his daughter, Victoria, for incestuous relations. Oh, come on now. <laughs> At the time, Victoria would have been pregnant or would have recently given birth to Kazilia. No, 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 no. 
Yeah. So when Kazili was born, it was indicated on her paperwork that her father was Carl Gabriel, who had conveniently died in battle in December 1914. Again, from Historic Mysteries, quote, however, not long after Carl left and returned to his parents' homestead before he headed off to war, uh, in later interrogations, one witness speculated that Carl left as a result of the indiscretions, as there would have surely been questions about who fathered Kazilia. Oh, goodness. Okay. (laughs) Andreas and Victoria were both found guilty by a court of law and both served one year uh, prison sentences. (laughs) Yeah. So Germany. (laughs) I mean, 1915's Germany. (laughs) Does that make it better? I don't know. I don't think so. That was, you know, they were building up to World War (laughs) One. Yeah. So there's that. Just keep that in the back of your mind. It'll come up again to work. Forever in my mind, unfortunately. (laughs) After this episode, you can just put it in the vault. Oh, no. Forget it forever. I want to keep it. So police continue to interview suspects, including traveling tradesmen and salespeople, uh, eventually adding up to more than 100 people. From all of these interviews, they sort of narrowed it down to two main suspects. The first, a man named Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Uh, Schlittenbauer had actually been part of the group that of locals that went to go investigate the farm and discovered the bodies, including uh, he was the one who went into the house and discovered Maria and Yosef. He was uh, interviewed at the time and then interviewed again when, in 1931 when the police began reinvestigating the murders. It was during that interview that Schlittenbauer claimed he was in a sexual relationship with Victoria towards the end of 1918. He claims that she told him she was pregnant and wanted to get married, but had doubts about the paternity of her child thanks to the incestuous relationship with her father. Uh, the police cleared Schlittenbauer after extensive interviewing. So he was kind of like the first, I don't, the whole incest thing is really throws me. (laughs) Not going to lie. The other suspect and arguably the more out there theory, I would say, was that the family was murdered by Carl Gabriel, Victoria's deceased husband oh deceased but not deceased deceased but not deceased yes so if you remember it was alleged that carl had been killed during world war one uh but when he was killed they were unable to recover his body from the battlefield Uh uh-huh So a rumor began swirling that Carl had not, in fact, died during the war, but survived and returned to Hinterkaifeck to exact his revenge on his wife. Okay. (laughs) Wanting to pursue all options, police did interview some of the soldiers who had served with Carl. Uh, They all said they witnessed Carl's dead body, although they didn't, they weren't able to bring it back. They were like, nah, we saw him dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, But did they? Because Mm -hmm. this theory, although like, again, like police pretty much dismissed this at the time, but the theory would come up again later after World War Two, when some German prisoners claimed to have seen Carl Gabriel in a Soviet Russian uniform. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Spy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So authorities conducted, um, I would say, as thorough an investigation as they could in the 1920s and 30s, working through like small town rumors, mm-hmm. a crime scene that had been extensively tampered with, uh, thanks to the response time of police and these like wild theories that were circulating. They were unable to develop any further leads or motives. The file was officially closed in 1955 with no resolution. But then the Furstenfeldbruck Police Academy decided to take another crack at the Hinterkaifeck murders and reopened the case in 2007. Really? Yes. Which is interesting because, and I feel like smart to take some of these um, cold cases or unsolved cases and present them to like students to okay. take it. Cause you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's that idea of like fresh eyes, mm-hmm. fresh practices. Nobody else is looking at them. So like, why not? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but because it was in 2007 and this all happened in 1922, uh, they found it even more difficult to investigate as a lot of the evidence and the witnesses had been lost to time. And again, according to Historic Mysteries, the, quote, team had agreed on a theory that kept it secret to respect the descendants of their suspect. What? Descendants of the suspect? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Yes. So, which I do find kind of interesting. Um, This is like sort of a respect thing within the criminal justice system in Europe that the U.S. just doesn't Oh, yeah, have. no. If people are like, I think it's this person and I'm going to go and, like, talk about it on public television and radio and make a book about it. You know? Yeah, straight up. <laughs> because really, like, even if it is their suspect, no one's going to be charged ever, probably, I would say. Exactly, because um, they're what dead. Is, <laughs> right. And their descendants have nothing to do with any of that you know what i mean like yeah. why would you have to release that and just like throw some random people's life into upheaval because you're like your great 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 grandfather murdered a whole family it's like i didn't even know that guy you're like that that tracks no <laughs> the family yeah. stories oh my <laughs> god like an asshole <laughs> the legend that has been passed down for generations is true he's an asshole <laughs> he's an asshole um, so I did, I found that kind of interesting, but like, respect that. I totally respect that. Yeah. Since the Hinterkaifeck murders, um, the town has since changed their name to Wadehofen. Uh, the former homestead has since been demolished, but a memorial was erected in its place for people to pay respects. But this case continues to be unsolved. Wow. That but, is the story of the Hinterkaifeck murders. slightly solved, but yeah. not. <laughs> but we know something you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's the hinterkaifeck murders i just it's just a nice little mystery all right so we're gonna go back to the united states And we are going to go to, I think, the worst time in contemporary history, which is the early 2000s. I mean, (laughs) that is up for debate for sure. Um, I think fashion wise, 100 percent music. I think this is when it starts getting really bad. That's just (laughs) your opinion, man. 
That is my correct opinion. Um. No. we. This is one of these things Janelle and I will always disagree on. Yeah. We are yeah. very different people, I think, when it comes to our musical selection. Yes. So I like good stuff and Vicky likes questions. And I stuff. like no. better stuff. <laughs> no, I feel like this is where things were getting a little bit more like automated, auto-tune-y, not like things were tending more towards not real instruments. Mm, <laughs> and I'm all mm-hmm. about, you know, I'm all about someone picking up an instrument. Um, but, and I like electronic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to go, we're going to actually be within Northern Illinois and Southern Wisconsin for this. Okay. Um, yeah. We're keeping it close to home, close to oh, the heart. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be November, uh, 2008. Okay. And it is right after Thanksgiving on November 28th. The remains of a woman were found in uh, a frozen creek bed in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Okay. Now, the remains were embedded in the ice and investigators had to chisel it out. Oh, my God. Cold as shit Wisconsin weather here. This was, you said December? No, November of 2008. Oh, how? Okay. 2008, I, if I remember correctly, was a real rough year winter-wise. Like, it was... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The body was clothed, but it was in clothing not appropriate for the weather. She had on a strapless top, no outerwear, jeans. The investigators found no shoes or socks, and her clothing appeared to be various different sizes, like it wasn't meant for her. Uh, she had no jewelry or tattoos, and her hair was intact, although the rest of her body was in an advanced state of decomp. Her hair appeared to be brown with chunky highlights, um, and there was no identification found with her, no purse, no nothing. It was just her body. Interesting. And they did a photo, like, realistic drawing of her, and it's a little bit towards the middle of the... Um, notes but it is like the most 2008 top you could think of i'm talking like forever 21 charlotte ruse deb kind of stuff it was charlotte ruse yeah it was black and it had a pink lining at the top and then a pink waistband and it was slightly longer it was like emo wear to the extreme Oh my god! So basically, what I would wear. Hold on, let I me mean, pull it. I now I have to look at this. Hold on. Yeah, I mean it's very like 2008, like pre-scene kitty kind of thing. Like I'm not quite emo, but I'm like getting there. Um, oh yeah, they I actually could see that. found out that the clothing was bought from I believe it was Family General or Dollar General or something like that, and I was like, oh yeah, they do sell clothes. <laughs> oh yeah. So um, the medical examiner could not determine a cause of death, but they suspected it was homicide, obviously. (laughs) Um, Right. They did a toxicology uh, test on her, but I could not find the findings of the report. It was just mentioned that a toxicology test was taken. And I looked through a bunch of the news articles and I couldn't find anything about any evidence of that, like, toxicology report. So. Okay. That's weird. They also could not determine the race of the woman, but they estimated perhaps that she could, this is the ridiculous part, she could be white, Hispanic, or Asian. Okay, that really narrows it down. That's like, what, over half of the of the races yeah. listed? Yeah, that doesn't narrow it down at all. Yeah. 
It um, was estimated that she had been in that creek for a few months. Her teeth were really well cared for, and she appeared to have um, a lot of dental work done, so some, some fillings and things like that. She also appeared to have a slight spina bifida, and she also appeared to have a healed over rib fracture. So if you're not familiar with the spina bifida, it's a bulge in your discs that can cause you to have a crooked spine, a protrusion coming out of your spine, a lump in your back. Um, okay. So she just had a splot, uh, a, sight, a slight one that was like, it, it starts with an O. It's like there's three levels of spina bifida, and she had like the most common, least recognizable one because it's so, so, so tiny. Gotcha. They determined that she was between 15 and 20 years old, which would make her birth year between 1987 and 1993. And they were calling her the Fond du Lac County Jane Doe. So because of her estimated age, clothing, and location, they surmised that she might have been a victim of sex trafficking. Okay. If you are not aware, this is really close to the Illinois border. And Illinois is currently in the top 10 in the United States for sex trafficking um we were number eight now we're number 10 (laughs) can we just not be in the top 10 for something horribly crime related that'd be great so if you don't know illinois um the proximity to chicago is what makes us a hot spot for sex trafficking yeah the main line goes from chicago to rockford into wisconsin and fond du lac county specifically does have a lot of sex trafficking um, crime in it really yeah which is like what wisconsin yeah <laughs> i would not have guessed that yeah so in 2009 the national center for missing and exploited children created a digital reconstruction of what they believed um this woman to look like the center received the autopsy photo and then did a ct scan of the skull and then using um tissue depth markers to kind of estimate like the different areas for her face they were able to get an estimation of age and ancestry, and they were able to uh, create the photos that I had put in the middle there. Mm-hmm. So they suspected that she was actually more from um, the Midwest, being white. Um, the Jane Doe's femur bone was sent to the University of Texas to obtain uh, DNA. So this is when more intensive DNA was starting to be viable, where we were talking more about ancestry DNA. Mm-hmm. When they collected the sample, it was then submitted to the national database, and um, they were seeing if they could compare it to cases of other missing reported women. Uh, Unfortunately, they did not. (laughs) They did look through uh, 200 leads in the case, and they used the digital reconstruction images to kind of put it out into the public to see if they could identify her. Um, They did receive hundreds and hundreds of tips, but none of them really went anywhere, The case also aired on America's Most Wanted, and there was even a Facebook memorial page created. Because this was like Facebook high times, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there were three missing women's cases that they really concentrated on because these women were close in age, appearance, and somewhat location. Um, So we'll kind of talk about those a little bit. The first one was Amanda Berry. She went missing in Cleveland, Ohio on April 21st in 2003. They could not find any direct evidence or DNA to match her to this. And if you're like, Amanda Berry, that name sounds familiar. That is because yeah. Amanda Berry was found alive in 2013. She was one of oh. the three women held captive by Ariel Castro. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, they did wow. find her. She was alive. Um, the next well, girl good. was Connie McAllister, who vanished from Wisconsin in 2004. This case is probably the wildest one. And I would maybe think about doing it in the future. But um, mm-hmm. McAllister was not identified as the girl. They did DNA tests uh, with her actual family. Um, but in 2003 as well, when Amanda Berry was found... Uh, Connie McAllister was found alive in Mexico. Wow. Her older boyfriend at the time of her disappearance drugged her and took her to Mexico. Oh, my gosh. Um, There is a lot of confusion after that. She states that she was unable to leave because she could not speak Spanish and did not know where she was. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, this was during the time when not everybody had a cell phone. Right. She eventually escaped her boyfriend, met up with somebody else. They were abusive to her, forced her into sex trafficking, escaped them. And then she actually found a man um, who she felt safe with, married him and had three children and is still in Mexico. Good for her. I mean, it it was wild. It's unfortunate. Why didn't you go and try and find your family after that? Like after the internet, cell phones, like anything. Just let them know that you're alive. Yeah. That's the one part of the story where I'm like, what? (laughs) You know, I can see that happening in like the 1800s. (laughs) But anything past like 1990, I'm like, come on now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, The last major case they looked into was Brittany Pert. She disappeared in July 2008 from um, Elkton, Maryland. On March 3rd, 2010, the police actually kind of came across uh, this particular woman's case. And that's when they were like, oh, this could be our Jane Doe. And they found her information in VICAP, which is the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program database. Um, So she had been, it was suspected that she had been taken. And VICAP has uh, like everything under the sun. Like they have missing persons, sexual assaults, homicides, Mm -hmm. like you know, unidentified human remains are in there. Unfortunately, Pert's remains were located and identified in December 2011, and her cause of death um, was not released. And um, her case is also still open. And she was found on the East Coast. So Mm. all of these women looked close to the rendering that they had created. So they were looking into those first. But yeah. By November of 2016, investigators um, took the case to the National Center of Exploited Children in Virginia to see if they could get um, her body exhumed and have hair, tooth, and bone samples collected and then ran through the database. Um, Because at the time, they only took some samples. And with the advances of DNA testing and, like I said, ancestral testing, they figured if they could get additional samples that they might be able to do a little bit deeper dive of DNA testing. Yeah. And so they exhumed, with the help of the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, they exhumed her body on April 26, 2018, to gather as much forensic information as possible. Now, they had decided to bury her pretty much right after in 2011 right after they ran through those three cases with those missing women so they actually put her remains in the cataraga cemetery in wapan and then the wapan high school donated a wreath um 
a local woman bought a bunch of flowers. Like she was buried in like this really beautiful, like powdery blue casket. Like the residents of the area that she was found, like went to fucking bat and like did an amazing, like beautiful funeral, bought a beautiful headstone. Like yeah. they paid so much money for all of this stuff to pay respects to this person that they didn't even know. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And so originally when she was found, she was also found by deer hunters. And one of the deer hunters um, who found her was actually um, the one who gave a eulogy for her. Like, led a prayer and gave a eulogy. So, like, it was actually, despite the fact of everything that, you know, potentially could have happened to her, she was put to rest with, like, the utmost respect. Yeah. So that's great. When they they exhumed her, people from the community kind of came back to kind of watch the exhumation and just, you know, they essentially prayed while they were um, exhuming her. Um, Yeah. So authorities announced that they would be performing an isotope test and DNA phenotyping. So if you're not familiar, um, isotope testing kind of determines the general geographical area where the person would have originated from. And it would give the, you know, authorities a better idea of where she might have come from, maybe perhaps even glean a little bit more into her ethnicity and her physical appearance. Okay. So they sent it out and the results stated that she was either from New Mexico or Arizona originally, but was living in the Midwest for at least a year prior to her death. Wow, that's wild that they can just like, I know that comes from environmental things, but like, it's just wild to me that they can sort of pinpoint it that much. Yeah. So it was believed that she had been around southwestern Wisconsin, southern Minnesota, northern Iowa, and northern Illinois before her death. And the if you're not familiar, the DNA phenotyping is the ancestral DNA. So that's how they got the East Area Rapist. Mm-hmm. I, what is what were they calling him now? I keep forgetting that the name change. Um <laughs> They don't no, call him I'm that not anymore. the one to ask for that. <laughs> yeah, they don't call him that anymore, but that's no. the only one that I can remember because I read that book by Michelle What's-Her-Name, and yeah. all I can remember is Easter. I'll be gone in the dark. Yes. <laughs> My brain is not working. I've had no coffee today, so excuse um, me. <laughs> I woke yeah, up and started out. podcasting. <laughs> yeah. So they did the DNA phenotyping as well, and they actually were able to find um, some ancestral DNA connections from farther away and were able to narrow it down to a mother and a sister. And okay. they, they directly did a DNA test with um, this woman and her daughter and it was a positive match. Um, and oh then to, to verify, um, they did an examination of the dental x-rays and records from this, this girl and they did identify her as Amy Yuri in 2021. Oh, my God. So. Wow. According to Amy Yuri's mother, um, she was from the Rockford area. She was last heard from when she was up in Beloit, Wisconsin. She called her mother for a ride home, but her mother was unable to help her due to extenuating circumstances, which probably means she didn't have a car at the time is what I'm gleaning from that. Her family never heard from her again, and weeks before her death, she was 
bouncing from couch to couch, traveling between Milwaukee, Chicago, and Beloit. Um, and she was a victim of sex trafficking. Oh, man. Now, Amy Yuri was from Rockford, and Rockford is the number two city in the state of Illinois for sex trafficking. Oh, my gosh. Second That's awful. to Chicago. Experts said in um, this article that I read that the average age for those forced into sex sex trafficking is between 12 and 14 years old. Oh, my God. So at the time of her disappearance, she was 20 going on 21. So at the later end of that. um, But yeah, most girls get pulled into sex trafficking between 12 and 14 years old. Mm hmm. Um, there's so much sex trafficking happening in Rockford that an organization was created um, in 2013 called the Rockford Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, also known as RACE. This organization um, kind of has been at the forefront of trying to get Rockford out of the number two spot, basically. <laughs> I mean, that's good. Somebody's got to do it. In 2014, with the assistance of RACE, Rockford, so this is going to tell you like what, what, how they've helped. In 2014, they arrested 95 women for prostitution and two men for soliciting sex acts. But in 2016, with training from race, police arrested 22 women for prostitution and 48 men for assisting in promoting of prostitution. Now, that's important. Numbers have flipped. Why have they flipped? Because most of those women are not willingly participating in sex acts. So this is the sex trafficking. They are being forced into doing this. And most of the men that they're being caught with are their quote unquote pimps and johns or the the men who are forcing them into sex trafficking. Yeah. Um, Race continues to work with the community by providing information sessions and training, especially in high schools, to college students and to the police force. The Amy Yuri case is still open, although I do not believe that they are investigating actively her murder Mm -hmm. because she disappeared. And honestly, I don't even think her family looked for her, which is so fucking It doesn't sound like it because when they contacted the mother, they were just like, yeah, we just never saw her again. Yeah, Like, like you never even tried or, you know, and I didn't find anything else from the family so, unfortunately, like, nobody was fucking looking for her. And that's how victims of sex trafficking happen. Like, they look for the people who don't have families or who have fucked up families. They look for people who are depressed, who might have, you know, problems emotionally or problems with, you know, kind of being in society in general. So I'm going to actually end this by giving you all oh, some tips and tricks to figure out if someone is being sex trafficked. Oh, good. This will be handy for everybody. Um, so please pay if attention. If someone is being sex trafficked, you immediately need to call your local police department and local sex trafficking hotline for our region, the Rockford area. Um, organization race would be amazing to contact them there's also some uh, organizations within chicago but call your local police first um so here's some things that you can do and this is to identify sex trafficking victims um there's three categories speech and behavior 
their belongings and interactions with peer groups. So if they are secret about who they are talking to or meeting, if they have sexual knowledge beyond what is age appropriate to them, if they exhibit dramatic personality changes, or if they have a lot of things on that would be related to like gangs or to specific groups. So like if they have gang colors or magically got new tattoos or something like that, that's also mm-hmm. a sign. If they have all of a sudden excess amounts of cash, if they have new expensive possessions, new clothing, new shoes, new phones, accessories, manicure, got their hair done, and they can't tell you how they got the money for that or who helped them get it. Um, if they have hotel key cards in their um, possession or sex oh. toys, sex items, provocative clothing that is not appropriate to their age level, or if they have more than one phone. Hmm. And then the last uh, little section here is if the sudden presence of an older boyfriend or girlfriend uh, with them constantly, that's a little worrisome. If they're being isolated from their friends and family, especially by a specific person or persons. If they're skipping classes, youth group, church, after school activities, that sort of thing. If they are acting out sexually. Now, I was kind of confused by this. <laughs> But did you ever watch the movie 13? Uh, ye- no. Um, so it it had, uh, what's her fucking face from Twilight in it? Nicole something. And, um, oh my god, I'm like out of my mind right now. And the oh. chick from Westworld. <laughs> Nikki Reed? Yeah. Evan Rachel Wood? Yes, Evan Rachel Wood and Nikki Reed. Um, that is like... All the behaviors that they're doing in there is like behaviors that a sex trafficking sex trafficking victim would exhibit. So the sexually acting out makes me think of the part where she um, starts yelling at her mom about how she lets other people touch her. So <laughs> it might be something like you know, saying really provocative and evocative things about your body and how you have sex, basically. Mm-hmm. And then the last um, tip would be if they're chronically truant, running away, um, hanging out with a gang, not coming home at night, not answering your phone calls, um, that sort of thing. So those are behaviors that might be present for sex trafficking victims. Also, that might just be uh, present for uh, teens who are depressed. (laughs) Yeah. So all around, just talk to your children. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So if you, <laughs> if you feel like you know someone who is a victim of sex trafficking, talk to them, talk to the police, talk to an advocacy group. Um, if you see something weird, like I've definitely experienced things when, like we live close to a truck stop area. Oh, and yeah. I've, de- I've definitely experienced things uh, weirdly with some of the truckers and women in that truck stop area. You know, say something. <laughs> right. But also like, the, the saddest part, I think, about reading about this is that most, if not almost all of the women um, who are sex trafficked and wind up dead, um, wind up like this case where they identify them and then that's that. Very, very, very often those victims will never have justice. Yeah. And it's really fucking unfortunate and disgusting how our 
how our entire justice system works. It doesn't care about women. It doesn't care about especially women who are um, deemed, you know, not decent or proper by society or who may have voluntarily done sex work, but now we're in a position where they can't or vice versa. It's not right. And it's not fair that a young girl lost her life and was fucking murdered and nothing will ever be done about it. Well, so that's said. my sad story. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I don't even have anything quippy to say. I mean, right? Um, like, how can you be quippy when it's yeah. like, well, you know, yep. there's definitely been instances where I've seen girls like when we went to high school, girls who are doing, you know, behaviors like that. And I'm like, oh, girl. Mm-hmm. And now that I look at it, it's like, well, fuck, something could have been happening to her. And yeah. no one would have known. We live in a Mm-mm. small town, you know, like that could have easily been swept under the rug. Or, you know, now when I'm out and about in society and I am interacting with, like, children in some of my, you know, jobs, I'm like, this kid needs help. Like, it, this kid needs to yeah. talk to somebody. Yeah. I can recognize it now. <laughs> right, But, like, a lot of right. people don't fucking know or don't get it or I'm just like, oh, they're being a brat. Oh, they're being spoiled. Oh, they're just acting out. Well, there's always a reason for someone to be acting out. They just don't act out to fucking act out. You know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> well, um... Good times. I guess, <laughs> I guess, uh, check out this podcast. <laughs> Hello, this is Margot P. And this is Margot D. And we are the Margos. We are the Margos. <laughs> co-hosts of the Book versus Movie podcast. We are the podcast that talks about films that are adapted from books. We read the book, we watch the movie, and then we decide which we like better, the book or the movie. Now I know what you guys are going to say. Duh, the book is always better than the movie. To which we always reply, have you ever read have you Jaws? read Jaws? <laughs> we are not film experts or literary geniuses. Nope, we're just two friends who like to chat about books and movies. We really like to go for a deep dive into the history of the book and the background of the author and the trivia from the movie set. And most of all, we just like to have fun, so we never take ourselves or the books or movies too seriously. You can find us wherever you sign up for your podcast under the name Book Versus Movie. And on social media, you can find us at Book Versus and Movies. You just spell it all out. Hope you check us out soon. Hate to be the Debbie Downer of the podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love not being. I feel you know, like I always today. am. <laughs> it's me. Yeah. Uh, well, that's been our show. <laughs> sure has. Uh, sure has. Do we have anything to discuss? I mean, new business, do. old business, <laughs> oldish, new business. I don't know how you want to put yes. that. But um, <laughs> we have a show coming up in November. I believe it's still going to be November eighteenth. It's it's the dead guy festival we're coming back from the dead um with haunted rockford but we don't have any information on ticket sales or prices just yet or even the location um but <laughs> was it but it's was coming. the apollo theater where we did it last time no we did it at oh, veterans memorial oh Hall yeah or something um but i'm not sure where she was looking so that's why i was kind of like <laughs> i don't know yeah <laughs> um yeah, in case you didn't know, we're in northern Illinois, and there was tornadoes a little while back, and um, it devastated some of the area. So, 12 tornadoes in one night. That's a lot one of tornadoes. One night only. One night <laughs> only. So, when we get more information on that, we will definitely 
We will post the shit out of it. <laughs> yes, we will. Uh, but other than that, I mean, if you like this it. episode, you can find more just like this at badtastepodcast.com, where we also have links to our merch and our donations page if you want to do that. No pressure. This isn't a hard sell. <laughs> <laughs> listen, uh, don't listen. You know, whatever. Buy a shirt. Yeah, don't buy a shirt. It's whatever. <laughs> when you get audio quality like this. <laughs> right? <laughs> when you get such positive reinforcement from yeah. podcasts about how to identify sex trafficking victims. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, I guess, our sound <laughs> and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zaszewski, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Cry Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye.